When I go back and read my journal one of these years through the months of November and December of 1983 and January of 1984, there are going to be two dominant motifs that I'll read. One will come under the title Frontier Missions and the other will come under the title Wartime Mentality. More than ever in my life, the stark reality of thousands of people groups unreached by the peaceful Western church has been branded on my brain. More and more, it troubles my heart. The logic of love becomes more and more irresistible. If you love the lost, you will seek, you will earnestly seek to rescue them from perishing. If you love the glory of God, then you will work and labor and pray to overcome the obstacles to the knowledge of that glory and remove the belittling of that glory that covers this globe in unbelieving peoples. The blinders are beginning to fall away from our eyes and the bombshells of the unseen war are beginning to explode with unutterable and horrible brightness around some of us at Bethlehem. And I'm coming to see the peacetime mentality that dominates our church and the churches of the Baptist General Conference by and large as a tactical victory of Satan, the result of a kind of nerve gas from Satan's arsenal of chemical weaponry that gives the soldiers of Christ a kind of stupor or others a kind of religious euphoria and eventually puts them to sleep at the gates of the enemy and makes them utterly oblivious to the cries of the POWs behind the walls. Who but Satan could devise a chemical weapon which when spread across the army of Christ could make it content simply to have worship services and small group meetings at the door of the dungeon. Picture the Allied troops landing in Germany, end of World War II, and marching victoriously over land towards the smoke coming up from the ovens at Dachau. And when they get to the gates of that concentration camp, striking their tents up and having a great Bavarian beer fest, to celebrate the victory while the Gestapo finishes off the 5,000 Jews inside. Satan is very, very satisfied with all of our religious activity as long as it does not move us to smash those gates and rescue those people. The top of my agenda, therefore, these days has been this question, how can I, for myself mainly, and for you, 
secondarily, get and maintain a wartime mentality. And tonight, lifestyle. Instead of repeatedly being lulled back into a peacetime mentality. Is there some way to break the spell of Satan? Picture an army, a great army, asleep in the fields around the stronghold of Satan where he holds people captive through the fear of death and all manner of other deceptions. They're asleep and in their limp hands are mighty weapons. And their armor is in the tent. And all of a sudden, somebody's eyelid blinks. And they lift their head. And somebody else's eyelid blinks. And he lifts his head. And pretty soon, heads are popping up all over, looking down at these weapons and their limp hands. And a great stir begins to spread through this army. And the armor is fitted and the swords are sharpened and the eyes meet with excitement and the light comes on in the commander's tent and the generals begin to meet for their strategy on how to attack. What has happened? The Holy Spirit has come down. That's what's happened. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Do not be drunk with Bavarian beer, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Put on the whole armor of God and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Keep alert and help each other be bold, says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. There is only one power that can break the spell of Satan that puts the church to sleep again and again and again. It's the power of the Holy Spirit coming down. December 10th, 1983, I was praying in my room, earnestly seeking the Lord about these things and where to go in my ministry here at the church. And I believe that the Lord gave me an overmastering conviction that I should preach a series of messages on the Holy Spirit. And I wrote in my journal that morning three reasons. I'll read them to you. If I am, number one, burdened for the vital experience of God missing in many of our people and for the present power of godliness, it makes sense to preach not just about what God has done, or what He will do, or what we must do, but on what God is now doing and how He is now experienced. That is the Holy Spirit. Second, the sentence is stunning and full of ominous warning. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The life of my people hangs 
on a vital experience of the Holy Spirit and a knowledge of how to wield Him. Third, there are miracles which God may be willing to perform in our midst if we sought His Spirit and were filled anew. And these miracles may win for Him glory that is now denied Him. Come, Holy Spirit, preach Yourself to this people. So for three days then, in the third week of January, you know, I went away to Shalom House and spent 30 hours or so alone praying and thinking about such a series with the result that today's message is the first of a series of 20 messages on the Holy Spirit, which Lord willing will carry us to June 17th just before I go away to the Baptist General Conference for a week. And my earnest desire is that you and I not just learn about the Holy Spirit, not just develop a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but that we come to know Him and enjoy Him and love Him and be empowered by Him to conceive and implement strategies for taking that camp with many people yet alive. There is a peculiar responsibility that we in this day have for knowing and honoring the Holy Spirit. I learned it through... H.C.G. Moole from John Owen, who wrote a big, fat, hard-to-read book called Pneumatologia, Knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Owen says, there are three periods of redemptive history which correspond roughly, though not exactly, to the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that in each of those periods of redemptive history, a peculiar and unique responsibility lies upon the people who receive that revelation to respond uniquely to that person of the Trinity. For example, before the coming of Christ, the unique obligation and touchstone of orthodoxy was the unity of God's nature and his monarchy over all and our submission to Him as Father. Then comes the Incarnation with the arrival of the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And for those some 30 years, the new touchstone of orthodoxy for the people of Palestine was, will those who are orthodox on point number one open their arms to and welcome God the Son? Then the Son is crucified for our sins, raised from the dead, ascends to the Father's right hand, and they pour out the Holy Spirit upon the church in unique and new prominence. And from that day forward until the second coming of Jesus Christ, we live in the age of the Spirit where the touchstone of orthodoxy is, will we honor, will we know, will we submit to, will we follow God the Holy Spirit. First, the prominence of God the Father, 
then the prominence of God the Son, then the prominence of God the Holy Spirit. It was possible for Israel to commit idolatry against God. It was possible for the Pharisees to reject the Son. And it is possible today for people to despise the Spirit. Owen wrote, The sin of despising his person and rejecting his work now is the same nature with idolatry of old and with the Jews' rejection of the person of the Son. We are a favored people. Do you know that? We are an extraordinarily favored people to live in the age of the Spirit. It began two days ago on God's calendar because a thousand years are as a day in God's sight. The age of the Spirit is two days old and we live in the middle of it. And you know why it's such a privilege? Because of old, people could only look at God, the Father, and some very dim foreshadowings of the Son and the Spirit. And then they could look at the Son with a partial outpouring of the Spirit. But we live in the place where the whole of redemptive history with the revelation of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is spread before us, preserved in Holy Scripture. We are rich. We are so rich to know the whole Godhead And what a responsibility we have to love Him and respond to Him as we ought. Surely, wouldn't you agree with this? Everyone who loves God wants to know as much of God and experience as much of God as we can. And today that means that we have a unique responsibility in this age of knowing and enjoying and following God the Holy Spirit. Going hard after the Holy God is priority number one at Bethlehem. Which leads me inevitably, as you can see, to a series of messages on God, the Holy Spirit. Would you join me in making the next 20 weeks unique in your experience? A unique openness, a unique pursuit of God, the Holy Spirit. And it may be that God would come and take away the spell and awaken the army of this church and we would storm the strongholds of Satan around this city in ways we had never dreamed possible. And there would flock to this church not just people who are already Christians looking for a great place to be taught and to worship, but people who are pagan through and through and have had their eyes opened by the power of the Holy Spirit through your testimony. That isn't happening very much. And I want it to happen. I want it to happen in my life. And I want it to happen in your life. And it's not in your power or mine that it will happen. It's only if the Holy Spirit falls upon us in a unique outpouring. And I thought, maybe if I preach on Him to lift Him up and honor Him, He would favor us in that way. Let me draw this uh, introductory message to a close by stressing two basic truths about the Holy Spirit, which will sort of be a foundation for everything else we do in the next 20 weeks. The truths are these. One, God the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force 
or a power or an activity of another person in the Godhead. And truth number two is this person is God and not a creation of God or an influence of God merely. The best support for the first truth is found in John 14, 15, and 16. And I'm going to point you to a few verses there quickly, just so that you can see why I accept this as biblical and not just something inherited from our doctrinal forefathers. There are three things in these chapters that demonstrate to me that in our Lord Jesus' mind, the Spirit is a person. First, in chapter 14, verse 16, he is called another counselor. He says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Now, when Jesus calls the Spirit another counselor, he is treating him as a person and not a thing or an influence or a power because a counselor is one who counsels personally, gives comfort as some translations have it, or is an advocate, as some translations have it. And the confirmation of that in the verse is that little word, another. I will give you another counselor. Who's the first counselor? Jesus. I will give you another counselor like me. And inasmuch as I am a person, this counselor will be a person. The second thing I see is in the next verse. Verse 17 of chapter 14 of John says, You know him... For he dwells with you and will be in you. Then drop down to verse 25 and notice the wording. I have spoken to you while I am with you. Would you agree that in verse 17, what Jesus is doing when he says, For he dwells with you and will be in you, is virtually identifying himself with the Holy Spirit? I am with you now, I will depart, but I will come to you again, but not as the Son merely, but as the Spirit. And inasmuch as I am with you as person, I will be in you as the person of the Holy Spirit. And the third thing I see is in verse 26 of chapter 14, where Jesus says, The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He is treated as a teacher, not as an impersonal vehicle of the teaching of the Father and the Son, but as a teacher in his own right. Or verse 26 of chapter 15 says that he is a witness in his own right. It says, when the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. So he is functioning, as it were, in a mysterious unity and yet diversity from the Son and from the Father as a witness. And I think one of the clearest evidences for this of all is in verse 13 of chapter 16, where the teaching Holy Spirit doesn't just teach, but hears from the Father and the Son. It says, He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, 
he will speak. So you don't have him merely as the teaching function of the father. You have him as a real person who hears from the father and from the son and then teaches to the church. I stress the personhood of the Holy Spirit because I think it will make a very great difference in your own personal life. If your conception of what it is that indwells you, leads you, purifies you, is more than a kind of cosmic, impersonal fluid or force or wind, but a warm-hearted, living person with his own personality. And if you combine with that the final truth, namely that this person is himself God, then it is an astonishingly comforting thing to know that he is within, never forsaking. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is conceived in the New Testament as God is most simply the repeated phrase, the Spirit of God. The phrase of God does not mean that he was created by God, but that he shares God's nature and eternally flows out from the heart of God. Follow me, if you can, in in just a brief final effort to reason from a few texts of Scripture. If the Son of God is equally eternal with the Father, as John 1, 1 to 3 makes very clear that he is, then according to Romans 8, 9 to 11, it's going to follow that the Holy Spirit is also eternal with the Father and the Son, because there the Spirit is treated as the Spirit of the Son and the Spirit of the Father, interchangeably. If we were to deny that the Spirit were co-eternal with the Father and with the Son, it would mean that there was a time when the Father had no Spirit and the Son had no Spirit and then He was created and called henceforth the Spirit of God. But I want to try to show in this week's star because I don't have time to do it this morning. So if you want to see the the last piece in the puzzle, you'll have to read the Bethlehem Star. I want to show there that the fellowship of the Father and the Son, eternally past, is inconceivable apart from the fellowship of the Holy Spirit between them. H.C.G. Moore puts it like this, the Holy Spirit is the result, the bond, and the vehicle of their eternal mutual delight and love. As far back into eternity as God the Father has been generating or imaging forth the Son, there has been an infinite Holy Spirit of delight between the Father and the Son, who is Himself person and God. And therefore I close with something that perhaps you've never related to the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the last verses of John 17 where Jesus is praying for the church, for you and me and for his disciples around him. And he prays nothing else than that they might have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them mightily. He doesn't use that word, 
But notice what he says. Father, I made known to them thy name. This is verse 26. And I will make it known that the love with which thou hast loved me might be in them and I in them. The most glorious thing that we are going to discover in the next 20 weeks is not that the Holy Spirit who dwells within us is the Spirit of the Father. And not that the Holy Spirit who dwells within us is the Spirit of the Son. The most amazing and awesome and glorious thing is that what dwells within us is the Spirit of love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. Have you ever wondered, how will I ever, throughout all eternity, love the Son and love the Father with a love anything befitting His worth? Do you see what the answer is? To be filled with the Holy Spirit who is none other than the love that the Father has for the Son and the infinite love the Son has for the Father. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you have the beginnings and the seed of a massive, infinite capacity to delight in God the Father and God the Son. His own infinite capacity to love himself. And now may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. And all God's people said, Amen.